Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, uh, fresh back from my foot surgery, as mentioned on our last episode. Had that done yesterday um, in recovery. Hopefully, uh, be walking back normally again soon. But today, we are talking uh, about a topic that we've mentioned numerous times on the show, and I, I always get a lot of questions about um, about this topic from our listeners that are outside the restaurant and bar industry. And uh, that topic is the three-tier um, system that we have here in the United States set up and why you can't get the alcohol that you want delivered to your home. So today on the show, we have Adam Thier, um, who's a senior research fellow with the uh, Mercatus in, uh, Center sorry, at uh, George Mason University. And he recently wrote an article that has been published widely. Now I've seen it kind of copied all over social media and it showed up in different uh, kind of online um, journals and such about specifically that. So uh, welcome to the show, Adam. I'm, I'm interested in uh, getting into this. Well, thanks so much for having me, Ed. I look forward to our conversation. So I guess, um, you know, we let's talk a little bit about where we, you, you and I both came out of uh, Indiana University's journalism program. That's pretty cool. Uh, and you're both, we're both metalheads, so you're, you're certainly welcome on Shift Drink. We'll have to have you on, uh, <laughs> especially with your, you know, kind of uh, deep knowledge and in, in, um, entrepreneurial pursuits and such. And, and you know, your background is, is in that. Uh, you've had a lot of work done in kind of uh, free markets and, and um, well, I'll let you kind of inform it a little bit. I don't want to read your bio sure. for everyone. What, what have you been doing up to this point before we're talking about alcohol? Yeah, well, I've spent the last 30 years covering the intersection of various types of emerging technology and public policy. And what I've done is I've examined in papers, essays, books, testimonies, the ways that public policy sometimes limits our choices as consumers and limits our ability to access new goods and services or technologies. And I've been lucky enough to be uh, at the sort of forefront of the internet and digital revolution in the early 90s. I sort of stumbled into the area of internet policy and started covering these interesting intersections. And when I began doing that, one of the interesting things I found was something near and dear to my own heart, which is that a lot of the things that I love the most in this world, fine spirits, good wine, beer, and so on, were some of the few things you couldn't get over the internet. They were still limited in many ways by state and local uh, laws and even some federal regulations. And I found that very frustrating. And so I started writing about the intersection of sort of new technologies, uh, federalism, interstate commerce, and various laws that govern these things. And so ever since, I've been writing occasional editorials here and there, sort of updating other people like me who love good spirits and beer and wine about like, what's the status of the law? You know, can we get the things we want or not? And why not? Yeah, and like I mentioned, we consistently get emails and messages on our social media accounts about like, you mentioned the three-tier system, or you mentioned this, yeah. you mentioned that, you know, I, I don't understand because especially um, listeners outside of the United States. And outside of where I live, you know, we have different laws here in Indiana than you do in Washington, D.C. In fact, we just addressed that on our last uh, episode um, um, uh, with Al Thompson. You know, there's being a federal district, you know, there's all sorts of muddiness in the water. So uh, maybe we start there. Let's, yeah. let's um, I guess, clarify a little bit what the three-tier system is and why we instituted this particular system after prohibition. Um, it's almost yeah. 100 years ago now at this point. It is, and it's a good good place to start the conversation because when prohibition started 101 years ago, I guess it would be in 1920. Um, you know, we locked down our nation for 13 years and, and attempted at least to stop people from drinking. Of course, it was an exercise in futility, led to a lot of criminality and a whole host of other problems. 
And by 1933, we had given up on this experiment and finally passed uh, an amendment to undo an amendment, the only time that's ever been done in American history. So it's pretty amazing that alcohol was at the center of an amazing constitutional moment. Well, basically, after 1933, we had a system where we kicked everything to the states and said, look, we're going to make it legal again, but we're going to give the states really broad discretion. And what emerged at that time and still is with us today is, as you noted, the so-called three-tier liquor system, which intentionally separated production, distribution, and retailing. And part of the reason for that is was a, a concern about competition, a concern about so-called tied houses, the idea that you would have certain retail establishments or bars or whatever else tied to various large liquor producers or wholesalers. Mm-hmm. And so competition was first and foremost at the heart of this system. And then there was another supposed rationale, which was safety. You know, the idea we want to make sure that not anybody could get access to it, that underage people, so on and so forth, um, couldn't get access. Well, here's the problem. Flash forward to today, and this has not done a job. It's not created more competition, and it has nothing to do with safety. The three-tier system really only does, the only thing it does is keep, you know, law-abiding citizens from enjoying legal products that they should otherwise have access to. And so it's un- it's an unfortunate uh, mistake historically that when we le- legalized, we didn't really fully deregulate liquor markets. Mm-hmm. We instead just gave the states the ability to control them as little mini fiefdoms. And today, your situation there in Indiana is totally different than mine here in Virginia, and it's totally different than every other state. Mm-hmm. And it's a crazy quilt of completely insane anti-consumer policies that really only benefit two parties. State governments that collect a lot of taxes and wholesalers, the private large wholesalers that right. control the distribution of all of these spirits. And that just doesn't make any sense in this day. And that's certainly where we kind of come across it as the purchasers um, of on-premise. Um, and again, I've, I've clarified on the show before, but on-premise being you're drinking the alcohol on-premises, uh, such as a bar or off-premise at your home. Um, but you you spoke to competition and um you know, it's not healthy for competition. You know, it was hard. Obviously, we couldn't have predicted the internet and all of these things back when they wrote these uh, laws. But you would think after, you know, 90 years of these uh, this three-tier system and, and seeing how it doesn't work, that we could um, pull back. And it's become more evident than ever, I think, over the last decade, where you're starting to see small production distillation. You know, we've really seen this explosion of craft distillers um, across the United States. And when I talk to these folks... Um, they have a real hard time getting their product into a wholesaler's book because they just aren't going to be able to move enough of it. It's not attractive enough for the wholesaler to put it into their portfolio to try to sell um, because they just simply don't have the time to sell 75 different bourbons and like concentrate on the one guy that happens to be local or you know something like that. And so um, what ends up happening is that it doesn't get placement at all. And then the people that are distilling this really only have one avenue um, for sale, and that's going to be on their own premises. So you have to visit the distillery to be able to purchase it because they can't ship ship it all direct to their consumers. And that really impedes competition in a large way um, on two fronts. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, let's start, first of all, with the good news. Let's let's go back to, again, the, the three-part uh, system, the three-tier system, production wholesaling, retailing. Well, on the production side, we've seen an amazing sort of renaissance in America, both for beer and spirits, and of course, wine too. Mm. And you have all of these wonderful folks coming together and creating new uh, breweries and wineries and distilleries. 
when I used to live in Indianapolis uh, in 1990, I don't think there was a single brewery in town. Not Maybe there was a very large production one that was affiliated with Bud or Miller or something, but there were none. Hell, these days I could probably spend all day and I couldn't visit the dozen or two dozen that are in the Indian. Oh, you haven't been back in a while. There's <laughs> probably 50 dozen. Yeah, I right. Back in 2010, when, there, when we had like 10, I thought we were saturated. And I think there's typically every year, there's about 75 new licenses out for breweries. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I remember seeing a story a, a few years ago saying something like a new brewery was being created on the average every day in the United States. Exactly. If anything, we, we probably have sort of uh, oversaturated the market, excuse the pun. But one uh, would think. <laughs> yeah, you would think. I mean, uh, I know there are some bad breweries and distilleries out there. I mean, sure, sure. Uh, they're not all good. But, uh, but that speaks great. to the heart it's of great. the competition part that you were talking about. You yeah, know. it's wonderful. We've had all of this, uh, you know, this amazing entrepreneurialism and people are creating all sorts of new hybrid uh, beers and spirits and everything else. It's, it's a great time in that regard. But let's remember that just, again, 20 to 30 years ago, that wasn't possible. I remember going to the very first brewery that was launched in Washington, D.C. in around 1994 or 5. And it was a big, big deal. A guy had to put all his savings up to try to launch it. Finally, he did. And now, again, there are breweries and distilleries Mm -hmm. everywhere in the D.C. uh, area. It's wonderful. But the problem is exactly what you just pointed out. Then they reach a bottleneck. All their wonderful products have to go through a system where there is a state-protected middleman, someone who, by law, has the authority to be the only person, the only organization who can distribute all of those wonderful products to consumers. And there's like really no other product like that in modern America. I mean, unless you're talking about truly dangerous, like weapons or like uranium or something, (laughs) you know, liquor is really it. This is the only one where we have a system like this. And it's completely insane because you would think that if the markets work so well to provide us all these wonderful new options at the production level, that if we would have allowed for more competition and diversity at the wholesaler and retail level, we would have seen new, interesting innovations and entrepreneurial types of things happening there too. But the law doesn't allow it. And that's where we stand today, unfortunately, for spirits. Well, and to uh, muddy the waters even further, um, we have what are known as control states uh, in the United States. And there's only a handful. I'm Luckily, uh, I don't live in one because everyone I do know that as a bar owner in those states um, complains about it uh, and and restricts their access even more so. Do you want to explain what a control state is? Ohio is being one that's very close to me. um, Yeah, we have have states that that control the the, the whole sort of vertical stack of wholesaling and and retailing all the way down. And what they do is that they either own liquor stores and the entire supply of spirits outright as they come into the states, they just control the whole process, or they heavily, very, very heavily regulate anybody who's retailing it uh, and they control wholesaling. So in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I live, or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, or the state of Ohio, you see laws like this. And it leads to really crazy problems. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, it's led to a lot of shortages lately. Yeah, uh, It's led to problems uh, in, in a lot of bars. I, I There's a tequileria that used to be right down the road from my from my university uh, where I where I work. And I used to go to them and they were constantly complaining about how they had a very limited range of fairly mediocre, big brand tequilas. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, why do you have like uh, Fortaleza or something I really like? And I'm like, oh, we can't get it. The state ABC won't allow us to have it. They only have five bottles that come in the state every year and they auction them off or they they, they lottery them off. Mm -hmm. So this is greatly limited choices, not just for consumers, but for restaurateurs and, and bar owners who are trying to provide their consumers with a sophisticated product. 
But control states just essentially can't allow it because they can't have a sophisticated supply chain to satisfy those demands. You know, and this reminds me of a situation that happened several years ago. Um, and it wouldn't have mattered. They were in a control state. It was Washington State. Um, but Rumba uh, in Seattle, uh, they were, I believe, at the time, the um, number one um, retailer of a particular rum. And uh, they just stopped carrying They stopped bringing it into Washington. And uh, they were the number one, again, number one retailer of that product in the United States. So when all of a sudden they couldn't get it anymore, the importer was stuck with pallets yep. upon pallets of this stuff because it was very difficult to move in other markets. And um, there wasn't anything that they could do about it. They couldn't really get it through any other means, uh, legally anyway. And, and so it just kind of disappeared. And so that creates a lot of problems for those of us on the retail side. And of course, you know, I think COVID has really highlighted that, you know, we are an industry that is extremely sensitive to these kinds of policy decisions. Um, We are a very thin margined industry um, and we can't take the brunt of of these kinds of decisions made in offices where it it really means very little to the people making the decisions, but on the ground and on the front lines, it can very much damage us in like, like an importer that's depending on selling pallets of this stuff through one particular bar. Yeah, it, it, it's hugely important to to restaurants and, and bars to to have this sort of flexibility and to be able to offer the consumers better options. Now, the good news, of course, if there's a silver lining to the cloud that is the COVID uh, lockdown crisis, it's that we did see some reforms at the margin here in some states and others um, in terms of allowing some bars to sell cocktails in a cup mm-hmm. or a bag to go and having, uh, you know, uh, bars and distilleries do other types of innovative things. And some of those laws are now being essentially codified and saying, like, we're just going to go ahead and preserve those freedoms. And what's interesting about that, you know, we're, we're talking here about, like, why can't you get your favorite spirits, your favorite whiskey, rum, or, or tequila, you know, directly delivered to you? And yet we, during COVID, decided it was okay to go down to your local favorite bar or restaurant and get a cocktail and a bag to go. If we're talking about this from a safety perspective, it's almost certainly safer to have a bottle of spirits delivered to your home where you're going to sign for it and you're going to pay a lot of money for it as opposed to just go to your local bar and get it in a bag or a cup to go where you could drink at the parking lot. Yeah. So that sort of throws the safety rationale to the wind and says, you know, it can't be that that's driving this. It has to be another explanation. And that explanation is the middleman who controls the system doesn't want to allow for more freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we were in a state where they never did relax those sort of regulations. Um and, you know, I didn't, what I would like to have seen is not them necessarily change the law, but they certainly have the ability to kind of look the other way temporarily uh, and just let everybody know, hey, we're not going to bust you if you're making cocktails and selling them to go. We were not in a situation where that happened. They said absolutely under no circumstances are you to sell mixed drinks uh, out. You know, it's got to be all its own um, original packaging. Now, um, you know, we were kind of jealous of states that where that did happen, but, you know, where we saw in New York City, um, they, it got much muddier with Cuomo, but, you know, in the beginning, um, you know, it, they let all of the uh, New York bars, you know, sell, carry out cocktails for the first time. Um, and then that was rescinded with like 12 hours notice, 14 hours notice. And so all of the packaging, you know, of course, it's a, it's a quite competitive market. So, you know, you've got to have special packaging, special labeling, all of these things. You've got your branding on it, all these things you've invested your money in and everybody would just stuck with it. Not only that, but you're in, you know, if you're s- stuck in, you know, lower Manhattan or whatever, you're in these tight little thousand square foot, if even a 200 square foot bar, you don't have a lot of room for storage. And so now all of a sudden you have to pay to haul this stuff off. And so it, it just uh, really, really kind of just got you on both sides. 
they, they really do. And, and and I don't need to tell you this, Ed, but as a businessman, someone who's worked in the in this sector, you, you know, what, what business folks need is, is certainty. They need certainty right. to, to know that like, what, what are the policies say? They'll comply with a lot of crazy laws, but they need to know what the laws are. And it can't be an ever-changing crazy quilt of just completely weird, uh, inexplicable, non-commonsensical laws that also then change by the day or week. I mean, that that's crazy. That's just not a way to run any industry. And yet that's exactly the kind of thing that happens in, mm-hmm. the, in the liquor business all the time. And, and of course, the 50 different state policies, we have this crazy patchwork makes it so you never know where your product is exactly going to come from and if you can get the kind of things that your consumers demand. So this, this system is really desperately, desperately in need of reform. So backing up to the um, the op-ed that you recently wrote about uh, why you can't get your favorite uh, you know drinks at home, you know I've um, been following a group called Free the Grapes for uh, many many years. It's been working on the, uh, interstate wine shipping and kind of uh, breaking those barriers down to be able to get your favorite wines from California and such. And that has become much easier today than it was 15 years ago. Um, you know nowadays it is quite easy to get online, order what you want. Um, as far as a bottle of wine or a case of wine and get it shipped to you. It is not that easy when you are ordering spirits. And right. what, so it does seem that the, that the hard spirits are more demonized or there's some sort of uh, stigma attached to it. And maybe you can explain that a little bit further, why it's become a bigger barrier to be able to get spirits than it is to get wine. Because you did mention specifically in your op-ed that you're a wine drinker. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I certainly prefer beer and spirits, but I do enjoy getting wine on occasion. And I've got some favorite wineries that that have really nice product. And when I was touring uh, some great Napa wineries uh, about seven or eight years ago, I found one that I thought had a really good wide range of products. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do something I've never done before, but now can. I'm going to sign up for a, a wine club by mail, and they'll send me just three bottles every quarter. And that's about all I need. I'm a pretty moderate wine drinker. Uh, and my wife and I had some favorites. So we we just fill out a little form every month and they come to our door. We sign a little thing and they drop them off. And it's all done through the internet. Really simple, very streamlined. That only happened because of public policy changes that were made starting in the 90s and then continuing in the 2000s. Married up with some Supreme Court cases that were finally decided that came down in favor of allowing interstate shipment direct to consumer by mail of wine, but only wine. And today, luckily, almost all states in the United States allow for direct-to-consumer wine sales. And the sky hasn't fallen. It works out pretty well. You know, this is a really nice system. And the question is that I let off my op-ed with is, why is it that I can't have that same system for my favorite whiskey or tequila or rum or even for beer for that matter, which we're starting to see a little bit more flexibility uh, during COVID, but not nearly as much as wine. And I think you nailed it, Ed. I think it comes down to the fact that spirits are often demonized a bit more. And there's a sort of a, I hate to say this, almost a little bit of like an elitist kind of thing, like, you know, the sort of wine and cheese kind of uh, attitude about wine being somehow nobler or better. I mean, look, uh, to me, a drink is a drink is a drink. Alcohol is alcohol is alcohol. And, you know, we can try to differentiate in other ways, but at the end of the day, wine and beer could do as much damage as spirits and so on. So there's no good rationale for why we would have this system just for spirits anymore, especially now that we know we have an effective system of regulating and taxing wine by mail. So you, you could eliminate the safety and the tax rationales for why we need to regulate these things. We still, the state gets a lot of money from taxing wine still. And there's certainly not a safety issue because again, it takes an adult signature. 
And what kid in their right mind, if they really want to like have an underage kid who wants to have like some wine or spirits, are, is going to go and sign up for an, a winery or a distillery right. and buy an expensive bottle from many states away to be delivered to their home where their parents will intercept it or a mailman will say, you know, you can't have a junior. I mean, mm-hmm. that would be the wrong way to go about it if you were trying to be engaged in underage drinking. So there's just no good rationales left anymore. For yeah, you're, you're not getting online and uh, going to Astro to buy a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 to <laughs> take a week to arrive right. on your doorstep, right? Exactly, it, 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 exactly. You're just going to probably bribe an older friend to go to 7-Eleven and pick it up for you and give it to you. But, but, you know, speaking to that kind of elitist nature, it does kind of leave one to wonder that if the, the laws hadn't been relaxed in the regards to wine, because it's probably what our legislators would want to have shipped to their homes and to be able to kind of make things easier on themselves. I mean, again, this is all speculation, but I don't think we're probably all that far off because there is definitely a, a kind of a belief that, you know, that the, the wine drinker is uh, more uppity and, and more high society and that you aren't going to have the same problems. But Obviously, like you said, alcohol is alcohol. Yeah, uh, I think there's one other thing here, Ed, that it's a little bit more uncomfortable to talk about, which is that there's sometimes, um, I don't know how to best put it, not bickering jealousies, but sort of like some underlying animosities within the liquor business itself between beer, wine, and spirits. Oh, certainly. And and certainly some of them don't want to be even affiliated or associated with the others. So when the wine folks mounted their charge to like get freedoms to ship wine by mail... And people like me suggest, well, what, what about beer and spirits? They're like, oh, no, 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 no. This is just about wine. And they acted as if they couldn't, you know, they didn't want anything to do with spirits. Well, that's really too bad. But at the end of the day, I think we can now realize the model that worked for wine could just as effectively work for beer and spirits. And there's no reason not to, to allow it. I mean, do you think there's a factor as well of like just culturally, we, you know, we're a very young country. We haven't been making cognac for hundreds of years. We haven't been making brandy for hundreds of years. You know, uh, well, I guess actually we have, but that's a different story. Um, but, you know, it just it, it's there's not as much of a culture here because we're not we haven't been around as long. You know, we've been here for 245 years as a country. And so it's just not as ingrained in it. Um, in certain yeah. ways, obviously, you know, this country was in large part built by alcohol, but everything's happened very quickly. And it just isn't uh, as part of the, the national DNA as, you know, wine would be in Europe. I mean, you know, we often hear about, you know, young kids going, not young kids, but teenagers going on vacation with their um, family in, in France or Spain and it not being odd to sit and have a glass of wine with their dinner, you know, at a restaurant when they're 16 right. or something like that. But here, you know, you wouldn't think of such a thing. Yep. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think there's absolutely a cultural element to this. And then you have to marry that up to it with the historical disaster that was prohibition. Right. And prohibition obviously completely derailed and destroyed the market for spirits and all sorts of liquor in the United States. And brewing cultures were destroyed because of that. And things that might have been differently done, done differently back then, all of a sudden couldn't be done at all. And then it took us decades to sort of recover from that disaster. And the way we recovered, unfortunately, was basically mass production of really lame pilsners and lagers in the beer market and a lot of bad box wines and, you know, average spirits. And when I was growing up, you know, my old man had a beer collection that consisted of nothing but lagers and pilsners. It was a really cool, you know, looking cans, but that was the only way they could differentiate because they weren't differentiating by taste. Right. And so now we live in a world where we, again, we've experienced a production, as I call it, a renaissance, just a rebirth of craft, distilling, brewing, and everything. And yet there's this choke point. 
there's this illogical middleman that's protected by law that's limiting the ability of consumers to even know that these products exist. Uh-huh. That's right. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, I, I was like, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with these small distillers uh, kind of starting up and not having access to the market. And those wholesalers absolutely know the power they have. Yeah. You know, um, when you're on our side of the business and on the inside, and you know, I'm speaking to the listeners, here's it. You get to see all the fights. You know, they're all fighting for the same couple of portfolios. We've mentioned numerous times on the show that pretty much all liquor, uh, major liquor brands in the world are owned by three companies. And, uh, you know, and they're constantly bickering back and forth to get ownership because, you know, if you carry Bacardi in your book, you know, and you've got the rights to sell Bacardi in a, in a big market, say New York, I mean, that's a big get. It's, it's a big seller. It's one of the number one selling uh, rums in the world or liquors in the world. And so if you've got access to that, I mean, that's going to be your focus. You're not worried about the, the company that makes, you know, 5,000 cases of, of a white rum that costs more than Bacardi. Um, you know, they're going to concentrate on where the money comes from. And so they have that and, you know, they kind of fight and switch brands back and forth. Or, I mean, uh, the brands will, you know, kind of be looking for the best deal between two or three different wholesalers. And it really, that the power they wield, they, they know the power they wield. And, and they come in and they're trying to, uh, I mean, I don't want to say they try to, but it sets up a situation where the craft distillers really just kind of give up and they want to move to self-distribution. I talk to them all the time and, you know, within a local market, they can do that. But when you start looking at shipping all over the country, again, you have to have licensing in 50 different, you know, patchwork pieces of, of the United States. And that's just for the United States alone. Um, You know, as a perfect example, um, so in Indiana, you may or may not know this and and things have been fixed since then, but uh, initially uh, when I started paying attention to wine interstate shipping laws, they it was really big news when they when they changed the legislation in Indiana, where they allow you to purchase wine uh, directly from the winery out of state and to be shipped to you. But the winery had to have paperwork on file with the state of Indiana signed that said they have seen your ID and they have checked your ID in person. So no one bothered to do that. And so you really still couldn't do it. I mean, it was just like, why would they bother when they could just ship to the other 49 states and just leave Indiana out of it entirely? Because it wasn't worth the effort to go file all this additional paperwork to send Adam a case of wine every quarter. You know, it just it it just didn't make any sense. And so, you know, it, it really is a system that is kind of impeding the whole idea of it in the first place, which was to protect competition. Yep, and, and, you know, and that's obviously where your work is. And as things are moving forward, I mean, we are changing the way we do business with breakneck speed. I mean, you know, really starting 99, I guess, with the dot-com boom, when everybody kind of tried to move to e-commerce. And now here we are just a short 21 years later, 22 years later, and COVID has accelerated that even more so, where we do all of our shopping online. We've made Jeff Bezos <laughs> an astronaut. Um, You know, and so, but the laws are definitely lagging behind and the public policy is lagging behind. What do we need to do looking forward to to remedy not only this situation, to make sure that we aren't having this conversation again in a decade? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of different layers to this. Again, unfortunately, because after prohibition, we had the three-tier system and kicked so much authority to the states, it basically meant that the federal government wasn't completely powerless, but largely powerless to have much of a say over competition in this marketplace. Mm. 
unlike almost any other good or service in the U.S. economy, which if there were states throwing up impediments to free trade among the states, it would be a direct violation of the U.S. Constitution. This was the whole point of the Constitution was to create essentially a good little free trade pact among the states. But with liquor, it's different. And so there are limits to what federal laws can do. But but there are a couple of things. The first thing that can be done is that we could pass legislation that legalized the United States Postal Service, USPS, to deliver beer, wine, and spirits, which currently they cannot. Um, only FedEx and UPS can do it. So that's one step because USPS could make it more cheap, a little bit cheaper, and have a little bit more competition. The second thing is that we do <laughs> they just pay to, they just pay FedEx to do it for them anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably true. Um, but it would be good to at least allow that other option. Yeah, for sure. So the other option is there are some levers that can be pulled in terms of antitrust competition policy. Mm. So recently, the Biden administration uh, issued an executive order. It's Executive Order fourteen zero three six. Executive orders are presidential directives that go to federal agencies, executive branch agencies, that instruct them to do certain things. And in this case, uh, President Biden instructed uh, agencies to look into a variety of things that could help, quote unquote, promote competition in the American economy. That was the name of the executive order. Interestingly enough, there was an entire section of this executive order that was devoted just to, quote, protecting the vibrancy of the American markets for beer, wine, and spirits, and to improve market access for smaller, independent, and new operations. And, quote, this could include rescinding or revising any regulations of the beer, wine, and spirits industries that may unnecessarily inhibit competition. So now there are federal agencies looking into the question of are there certain state policies that might be limiting, again, the vibrancy of the American marketplace for beer, wine, and spirits. And if there is a potential antitrust hook here, and what I mean by an antitrust hook is that our states essentially acting as economic actors themselves, like they are, they are essentially controlling the marketplace. And we, as we just discussed, we know that they are either directly or indirectly. And if they're doing it and it's become an anti-consumer fiasco, that's anti-competitive and only benefits a handful of players, that's an antitrust violation. And so the question is, can that be litigated or can it be pursued at a minimum our federal agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice Antitrust Division could investigate these sorts of things and at least put pressure on the states to reform bad policy, mm. which then gets to the second, second part of the uh, what's needed, the states themselves. The states can do this unilaterally by just starting to relax really crazy backwards laws. And yeah. some states, five of them, in fact, have done this. Kentucky, uh, unsurprisingly, sort of led the way with their big market for uh, for whiskey mm -hmm. and basically started allowing uh, direct-to-consumer sales. Um, and there's been a, a couple of other states, I think Alaska, Arizona, uh, Nebraska, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And these are states that have started the process of allowing for something like what we do for wine to happen for spirits. And in those states, again, the sky hasn't fallen. Things are working fine, but they have a very limited marketplace. What we need is a lot more states to jump on board with legislation like this, or even better, Ed, would be some sort of an interstate agreement or a compact where states would come together and say, you know what, let's solve this. Let's come up with an agreement that we will agree to have some reciprocity and you'll take our spirits and we'll take yours, just like we do for anything else from auto parts to, you know, your Amazon goods, you know, it can all be shipped. That's what's needed. But unfortunately, we come back to the very powerful middleman at the, at the heart of this problem, who at every juncture and in every state have huge lobbying outfits 
Right. Yeah. And that's what well, exactly what I was getting ready to say is that yeah. you know, we hear about these lobbying efforts all the time. So in Indiana, we just until recently, and I believe three years ago, four years ago, I don't know, time flies, right? Um, last year and a half doesn't count. But we had blue laws on the books here in Indiana, which you could not purchase alcohol on a Sunday at a liquor store, uh, a grocery store, anything like that. You had to, if you wanted to drink on a Sunday, you need to buy it on Saturday or go to a bar. And so, but, you know, they're, they're called blue laws and they, they are supposedly on the books because of this kind of Puritan yeah. uh, vision of the, of the United States that, you know, it's, it's the Lord's day and all that. But you can't convince me that the lobbying efforts that were being put forth to keep those laws on the books had anything to do with religious institutions. Of course they didn't. It was the wholesalers. Right. The, bar, the restaurant associations, and I realize I'm on that end of it, but, you know, it was what we saw, and it was part of these kind of restaurant associations, these not-for-profits, that um, had major lobbying efforts because football Sunday is huge for sports bars. And so you have companies like, you know, Applebee's, things like that to have TVs, uh, you know, in their in their bar areas. That, that's a boon for them. You know, it was a big day. I worked for uh, Buffalo Wild Wings for a decade, and I can tell you, we certainly... Uh, didn't want to see everybody be able to go home and have their party. If you forgot to buy your beer on Saturday night, hey, tough on right. you. Oh, we, come on in here and drink it. We'll charge you, you know, four times what you're going to drink at home. So, you know, it, it is it's those lobbying efforts, and you, we see the uh, kind of financial interest uh, masquerading as some sort of a Puritan ideal um, of what they what we should be upholding. And I mean, don't even get me started on religion in the first place, but right, regardless, right. you know, we, we pride ourselves in supposedly being separated from that. So, I mean, it's when you're talking about, you know, like, you know, letting the States relax these laws to, to be able to kind of kick this off in the next wave of the overhaul that we're going to need to see. Um, there are a lot of us in the, the middle of the country here, you know, and they call the Bible belt or whatever, you know, it's where, it's quite conservative. We're all red states. You know, they they want to see, you know, <laughs> women with dresses down to their ankles and such. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, it's very hard to, like, um, depend on our politicians to do the right thing because they're afraid they aren't going to get the votes. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I think for, you know, in that middle section of the country here in the Midwest, it, it would certainly help to see some movement, um, you know, either federally or pressure being put on by the states surrounding. You know, we, we talk about this a lot in the uh, cannabis legalization. Um, you know, Indiana's obviously going to be quite far behind, but now we see it, in, you know, coming about in Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, and Illinois. That's all the states that surround Indiana. So right. know, there's going to be enough pressure put on eventually, but, you know, it's getting to that tipping point where we can get, you know, uh, our booze shipped in, which, again, you mentioned Kentucky. Of course, it made sense for them. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of bourbon is actually distilled in Indiana, um, yeah. very close to the state line. But um, one would think that, you know, our state in particular would be jumping on this. But, you know, I, I think, that, again, there's this kind of separation between what we should do and what the business interests, a.k.a. the wholesalers, want done. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And unfortunately, policy change is a slow roll. It's a it's a very slow process. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it. You would think in Indiana, because of what you just said, that the presence of a major distilling uh, distiller in uh, the southern part of the state, and and the fact that there's a really interesting craft culture being born not only in Indiana but all of, all the surrounding states, that lawmakers would get this. But unfortunately, they don't hear this when the loudest voices are the big protected wholesalers and other parties who are lobbying against it and have the ear of people in power. Right. I mean, this is this is the this is a well-known problem in the field of uh, of economics and uh, political science. It's the so-called regulatory capture problem, 
And so many regulatory agencies and regulations themselves are captured by special interests who just sort of wrap themselves around that law or policy and hold on tight forever and say, this is our baby. We're not giving it up no matter what. Hmm. And the problem is, is that everybody else could be getting screwed by that process. But the one party who has the most interest in holding on to that law or policy is going to be heard the most on it mm. because all of our other voices are more diffuse and, and we have a lot of other concerns to, to raise with our legislators. Well, I think COVID-19 has really uh, shown a spotlight on that in, in a lot of ways. And it's, it's funny, I hadn't actually heard that theory or an actual name to it. Uh, I don't often get to chat with economists. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, we, we definitely saw that, um, you know, these public policies, and I'm going off the rails here for a second, but, you know, when we see like uh, the paycheck paycheck protection program, we're not designed with hospitality uh, industry in mind, not the small ones anyhow, like most of us on the ground that didn't help us whatsoever, but the loudest voices were the ones that could be helped, the publicly traded companies and all that. And so because we're such a, um, a, a patchwork quilt, much like, you know, the, um, the states themselves, uh, we didn't have one kind of unified voice. And so um, our interests weren't really being watched out for because we didn't have anybody to kind of um, corral us into one voice. And the ones that do have the big voices, in the case that we're talking about here, um, you know, would be uh, the, the wholesalers. And again, during COVID and all these um, kind of policies to help us financially, it was by a lot of publicly traded companies that, you know, had hundreds and hundreds of restaurants. And I mean, we saw that by the definition of a small business being 500 employees or more. Like I... <laughs> For us uh, that are on the front lines of running a small independent business, 500 employees to me sure doesn't sound very small. Yeah. And, you know, we had four restaurants or I had four restaurants at the beginning of this and we had a t grand sum total of 90. So, right. So it was um, it, it, those sorts of things. And so, you know, again, speaking back to what you were talking about, the, the loudest voice often gets to make policy or at least have the ear of the policy makers. Right. So what can we do to kind of chip away at that? Well, I think what we saw during COVID that was effective is that we saw a lot of the smaller uh, breweries, distilleries, and others, and their consumers start to utilize new technologies to sound off and be heard in interesting ways. Um, we started seeing interesting things posted on social media about the, the creative things that some uh, establishments were doing to try to stay afloat. And of course, a lot of them just appeal directly to legislatures and say, like, look, you talk a big game about believing in small business, but we're all about to go under because of your lockdown policies. Mm -hmm. So you've got to at least give us some limited flexibility to operate more creatively than we have in the past uh, or else we're going to go under. And I think that was the beginning of an interesting change because, it, unfortunately, it took the crisis to sort of force the change, but it did create some impetus for change. And the question now is, are all of those things that were relaxed or repealed during COVID, are they going to be put back on the books? Right, in right, some right. states, yes. In some states, no. Texas uh, actually went ahead and just said, you know, everything that we we allowed you to do during COVID, we're going to continue to allow you to do if you wanted to, to sell, you know, cocktails to go or, or whatever else, go for it. Um, and so, you know, it depends. It's, again, state by state. And it's not optimal that we have to fight these battles this way. But I think, unfortunately, it comes down to us being good sort of like citizen lobbies, us being like getting our voices heard through the new technologies and services that we have. In some cases, it takes little mini acts of civil disobedience. A lot of bars and a lot of restaurants started uh, protesting certain COVID policies like, well, for every drink you want to serve, you've got to you know serve some food, too. 
Mm-hmm. And so they started naming like the little like cheese curds they were saying they, they were having to sell like after local politicians <laughs> and, you know, like try to poke fun at the fact that like, why do we have to sell peanuts or cheese curds in order to like just sell somebody a bottle of spirits? Well, the same thing here in Indianapolis. I mean, we've got uh, some breweries that are production breweries only. And to be able to have a tap room, they have to have food uh, available. And so we've got a brewery that has uh, hot pockets on the menu for a hundred dollars. So you know, no one's going to buy a hundred dollars, but it's on the menu. It meets the, the, the requirements and it's it's absolutely absurd. It totally is absurd. And Ed, in, in DC, it was so absurd that um, we have one of the biggest uh, whiskey bars in the entire world in uh, Washington, DC. It's called uh, Jack, Jack Rose. Rose. Yeah, yeah it, it's a wonderful establishment. And uh, I, I, I go there all the time myself. And during COVID, a lot of us were worried that they were going to go under, but they started liquidating their collection and selling it off in order to, to pay staff and stay afloat. And then finally, they got permission to have people come in and like buy things directly inside. Um, but you had to still serve food. And people weren't allowed to sit down, though. They weren't allowed to stay. They were going to have to take basically a thing of fries to go or cheese curds or whatever. And so basically what happened is that people would go and just order like a $5 set of fries. And then the people in the kitchen would just go ahead and eat whatever they just made. Yeah. They'd like nobody could really take it. You could take it to go. But most people were saying like, just let the, let, let the staff eat it. Um, so I can buy my, you know, bottle of really nice four roses or Blanton's and go. Um, and so these things are absurd. Yeah, and I think really, most people realize they're absurd. But we're, we're still trying to get out of this trap. And unfortunately, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. We have to continue to put pressure on and, and, and make our case. And I think there is strength in numbers. The best news, again, because there's been this renaissance on the production side with all the new competition at the distillery and brewery level and winery level, those are extra voices to be heard now. Mm-hmm. And if these people are willing to come together and work collectively, we can start to push back against the insanity of a system where really only one party, the middleman, the wholesaler, is benefiting. Right. And so, you know, as uh, do you think, I mean, I, I believe that we've probably fast forwarded through a lot of this conversation that would have taken much longer because of the kind of uh, issues that were laid bare during the pandemic. And, and you know, like you said, um, kind of strengthen numbers. It did kind of re- um, remind me when you said that, you know, just kind of the civil disobedience, there was a time where uh, during the pandemic, I said we could not serve mixed drinks here in Indiana <laughs> and I, oh, and I, or not to go, right? We couldn't sell them carry out. And I, I called my attorney and I said, you know, can, can we do this or not? I've, I've heard from, you know, a lot of online sources that we can, they're going to relax this. And uh, he said, no, absolutely not. I called the commissioner. They are not allowing it. Be aware. And four days later, a major publication in the city picked up on that story, but they had the wrong information as well. They said, hey, look, they're relaxing everything. You can do it now. And at that point, everybody started doing it because that's where they read it. You know, they saw it in print, didn't bother calling their attorneys. And so we're sitting there not doing, we're not selling, but everybody around us is, we're like, well, screw it. I mean, everyone else is. And there wasn't anything that could really be done at that point because it was everyone. So that was just on the bar side of it. But you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, gathering all of us as voices how do we do that? Where do we go to? Where can we make your voices heard? Are the listeners of the show that aren't, you know, economists and they're not restaurant owners or bar owners, how can they make their voices heard? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, luckily there are efforts that can be handled at the state level through various breweries, uh, distilleries, and others coming together. Some of them do it formally through trade associations. Others do it through sort of local close-knit groups. Um, sometimes there are, uh, there are consumer side. Uh, advocacy groups for beer drinkers, wine drinkers, spirit drinkers that, mm-hmm. that try to push back. 
again, it, it, it's small time, but every little voice matters. So those sorts of efforts combined with sort of the, the presence of modern technology and getting our word out, it's really, really helpful. You know, one thing we haven't talked about, Ed, and we talked a little bit about sort of the civil disobedience side of this and, and of course, what consumers can do is the fact that they're in the midst of all of this, these rules that have been on the books for so long, there's been a lot of sort of gray market activity with people trading all under the table, all sorts of things. Right. And, you know, new technology has greatly facilitated this. And I'm going to be careful about what I say because I engage in a lot of this myself, <laughs> but there is a, a, a robust market utilizing new technologies, things like Facebook groups, Instagram, uh, chat services for trading spirits and beers <laughs> underground. And I have people I trade with across America, my favorite beers there and here, um, and bottles of uh, fine spirits. I have a friend in the military who shall remain nameless, who has gotten some really nice bottles of Blantons um, uh, that are only available in Japan. Yeah, I mean, the flexibility of spirits is certainly, uh, I think, uh, the appetite for that is more voracious than it's ever been because the kind of barrier to entry for the kind of small batch uh, production, you know, there's a need for it now. There's a desire for it. I mean, you talk to some of the old bourbon brewers or um, bourbon distillers in Kentucky, you know, they talk about in the 70s, they couldn't give this stuff away. Right. You know, so yeah. now there's a real appetite for it. And so, yeah, there's, there is these great markets there's a, there's come a, about a because premium. there's an appetite for it. There, there's both an appetite and a premium, but unfortunately, part of the premium is based on crazy laws. Right. The right. reason I'm going to pay extra to get that Blanton's from Japan or that special body of uh, a bottle of, uh, you know, William New Weller or George T. Stagg or Pappy Van Winkle is because I can't go to my local store and get it. Mm -hmm. it it's, it's just not available or it's lotteried off or it's given away. I mean, right. hell, I used to know how to work the Virginia wholesale system here run by the state. Literally, I would get on the phone with a little old lady in Richmond, Virginia, the state capital, and I would pressure her, petition her to please put me on the special list for the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection every year when it, come out, when it came out. I have bottles of booze sitting on my shelf in my basement that came to me at a wholesale rate of just... I think it was 80 bucks at the time mm -hmm. for, for bottles that I could have flipped in the secondary market for 500 to 2000 bucks instantly. Way go crazy there for several years. I know. And you know, we, a lot of us in, on our end of it, because it was being held over our head because again, we're kind of at the whim of the wholesalers. You know, they say, well, we've only got, a, you know, two cases of this stuff and it's allocated. And they say they don't do these things. Right. Cause it, it's uh, in some cases against the law and how they can allocate and who they choose Right. But, you know, uh, they can say, well, you buy X amount from us and we're going to give it to you. And again, smaller uh, bars. Uh, and at the time, I one of my bars was a, a huge drum bar. Um, but we also had, you know, because we had discerning drinkers coming in, we always had to make sure that we had some really nice bourbons on the shelf. But because of that, we didn't, we had, you know, five, I have like 300 rums on the shelf and maybe like two dozen bourbons, but we didn't fly through the bourbon as fast. So we were never on that list to get those allocations. Yep. And, you know, and it, it does, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the same thing of not having a voice and uh, it, it, it's really frustrating, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but I do believe that, you know, COVID has probably brought this conversation to the forefront a little bit more. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, it's just, it's tough. I mean, you know, we've been sitting here talking for 45 minutes and I'm still not sure, you know, where we go from here, you know? Well, there's and, not an easy answer. Ed. I, right. I think obviously, again, policy change is slow. And it is difficult when you have a protected middleman that right. benefits from laws that will take time to reform. And a very powerful it, one. 
a very, very powerful one. And, and again, it's created as exactly as you just diagnosed the equivalent of a, essentially a good old boy network. I mean, mm-hmm. there's like a chumminess with the people in the wholesale industry and with regulators and lawmakers. And, and that's really, really hard for average uh, Joes like us to basically, you know, break, break through and have our voices heard. Mm-hmm. It takes time. But again, I'm optimistic that because of our experience with wine and our increasing flexibility with beer, that it has created a template for how distribution of spirits could work and be more efficient. So that's the best news we've got. This, the second piece of good news is it's easier for us than ever before to have our voices heard. We can continue to kind of petition uh, at, at a local level, at a state level, using utilizing new technologies to try to say like, look, we, we think this is crazy. We want the laws changed. And then of course, the, the fact that we've had the continuation of uh, the COVID crisis and continued pressures put on small businesses, right. I think at some point, some local lawmakers are getting more and more sympathetic to the idea that, look, they need flexibility. They need some added freedoms. There's no reason for us to impose these rules. Hell, we haven't even talked about the insanity of what happened when the distilling industry rose up and said, hey, you've got a shortage of hand sanitizers, we can provide it. And right. the, the regulators were like, no, 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 we can't have that. And then finally, they just started doing it, and then they allowed it and said, thank you, we appreciate that. <laughs> so sometimes that's how policy works, right? It takes that sort of crisis, and then it takes a little bit of experimentation, even a little bit of disobedience, and then things change. Well, you know, this has been a fantastic conversation. I wish we could do this for hours. Um, I hope that we get to revisit uh, this conversation here in a few years, and it's all been remedied. Um, are there any particular um, groups that you... Um, Kind of have have run across that are making big strides in in getting uh, in front of lawmakers to make things flip. And again, I realize that that's a hard question to ask because yeah. we have fifty sets of different, well, even more so with you know Puerto Rico and such. I, I you know I forget the names of some of the groups and the and the, and the names and the groups change quite a bit. There's been right. different right. types right. of efforts from beer drinkers to to spirits drinkers to come together, and, mm-hmm. and then sometimes these things are forgotten. And uh, it, it's unfortunate that we're not better sort of uh, organized in terms of like taking this fight to, to the other side and the other side's very, very well organized. So well, I think that's what it comes down to, right? Is that yeah. you know, we're, we're, like I said before, we're just a, a disparate group of, of independents. And, and so, you know, like I said, I first kind of really started thinking about this problem with um, a group called free the grapes and, you know, they concentrate on wine, interstate wine uh, shipping. But the, if you get on freethegrapes.org, they usually have, at least uh, last time I checked, they usually have all bills that are in front of state legislatures at any given right. time. So you can kind of keep track, but um, you know, maybe that might be a spot. I'll hunt down some things. We'll cut it. Uh, pe- <laughs> Excuse me. We will put that in the show notes um, for this week so that you can kind of click through, but we, we want everybody to make your voices heard as much as possible. Um, Adam. So what's next for you? I mean, you've got your, you've got a lot of stuff on your plate and, you know, obviously this isn't the, this is a kind of a labor of love for you when you were out talking about uh, spirits and interstate shipping, uh, you know, yeah. what, uh, other publications you have coming up that we should be looking for. Well, I'm always interested in this topic because it, it's so near and dear to my heart. And one of the things I'm going to con- try to con- uh, continue to try to do is that there are efforts afoot by policy oriented groups and analysts like myself to try to craft model legislation, sort of like good bills that could be floated in various States to have a model for reform that can be, reproduced state by state. This has been going on for many years now, but the wholesalers have beat it back whenever it's been floated. But I think the more we can continue to float good ideas, including sort of model bills or compacts or agreements among the states, eventually some more is going to stick. I mean, I already pointed out five states have done this, right? Mm -hmm. 
So maybe the next time we talk, Ed, maybe it'll be 10 or 15, and then maybe it'll be 20, 25. And then all of a sudden, it'll start, that role will be a snowball and right. will have effective reform. And even better would be somebody launching some sort of a lawsuit. Now, I haven't seen that yet, the right kind of lawsuit, but there've been at the margins some legal activity in court cases that have chipped away at this old regulatory edifice. And so hopefully next time we chat, Ed, we'll be sharing a spirit that you or somebody locally in Indiana has sent to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely happy to. Because well, was, you, you, know, you and Virginia, you know, Indiana and Virginia have an agreement and that would be progress. Well, we, um, you know, kind of run across this or ran across this uh, many, many years ago. Uh, we would have folks coming in to, um, from out of town and they just they wanted to get three Floyd's beer. You know, I mean, it was very difficult to get outside of Indiana at that time. And so, you know, we would just set up, especially if they were in California, um, you know, with some brews that we couldn't get. We're like, well, I'll ship you a case. You ship me a case, you know. And so those sorts of things do kind of um, it, it's yep. all about knowledge. Right. If you know what's out there and how to do these things, then, you know, we can start putting pressure on those of us that don't want them to do it. Well, don't and, want and, to and, do it. And, and Ed, we can end it there on a good note of optimism because the three Floyd's experience is perfect one because I too used to have my best friends and my, my stepbrother in Indiana ship me three Floyd's for the longest time. And then because of positive changes on the beer distribution front, I now have access at a, at a, at a bar and a beer store just five minutes from my house to wonderful three Floyd's beers every single week. They send new ones. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. An amazing change that happened just in the last 18 months. That's super. So change well, can happen, my friend. It, it can happen. And again, I think that we've got an, a unique opportunity here where these conversations are happening because uh, of the pandemic that we've all been through. So let's keep the pressure on. Let's get this, uh, you know, Let's get this flipped over so those of us across the United States can all enjoy the same beverages and together instead of everybody has different access. So thanks for coming on the show, Adam. It's been a really fantastic conversation. Like you said, I've been waiting to have somebody kind of properly explain the, the problems within the three-tier system. And again, my friends in Europe um, are always perplexed by, you know, kind of how difficult things can be here. So uh, I appreciate you coming on and explaining all that. I can't wait to have you back on. Um, anybody, uh, wants to check out the show here, you know, you can always find us at, uh, on social media at shift drink podcast. Um, and of course, always all of our back catalogs at shiftdrinkpodcast.com. Uh, any of your publications have kind of a, a one single home, uh, Adam? People can find my publications at the mercatus.org, uh, website mercatus.org. Um, and you can of course just, uh, do a quick search for, uh, me and, uh, home liquor delivery and you'll find several things I've written on this topic. So I promise I'll keep doing more and uh, hopefully one day soon we'll be able to, to share, a, share a drink together, Ed, and, and toast our success on this one. Well, keep up the good work, sir. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.